Uh, John chapter 5 is where we're going to be. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, I would love for you to look it up on your phone so you can see for yourself John chapter 5. And while you are finding John chapter 5, uh, next week we're going to do something a little bit uh, different. When we built this place, uh, we put in the capacity for me to talk to the church, uh, our whole church. If, if you're a guest with us today, we have three campuses uh, here, one in Cyprus and one in Tomball. I wanted to be able to, to occasionally, just a couple of times a year, speak to the church all at one time. And so we're going to try that next week. Uh, here's, the, here's the good news for you. I don't want to be a part of a disaster. You don't want to be a part of a disaster. And so if it's a disaster, we'll never do it again. Uh, but uh, there's a message that's on my heart from Matthew chapter 25. I think it's a really important message uh, for all of us, for uh, some of what we just experienced. You know, um, when you read the New Testament, uh, the churches there, they're very simple. Uh, they're getting together in people's homes. Uh, they are opening up the scripture. They're praying for one another. They're knowing one another. And, uh, and they're sharing the gospel. That's, that's pretty much it. Uh, when you come to a church in America in 2019, uh, it seems a little bit more complicated than that, doesn't it? It's got to have this, it's got to have that. Uh, the, our, our list of expectations for a church today are a little bit more specific and random from probably those first followers of Jesus' uh, demands and expectations of a church. And, and so every once in a while, I just love to, to center us back on, hey, it is okay if we come together, pray, open the scripture, and go away. It's totally fine. And it, it would be totally fine if today, instead of uh, the message that I prepared, um, we just read through the book of Ephesians. That would be fine. And uh, we don't need a lot more than that. Um, we just are the people of God, sitting under the word of God, living with the power of God. Uh, but church can, can become, have a lot of layers to it. And the message next week, I hope, kind of just reminds us um, of the simplicity of what God is asking us to do in this world. And so it's, it's from Matthew chapter 25. Love for you to read it next week. And, and I'm excited to just try to address the church all at one time. So be praying about it this week. Uh, we've never done it, but I think, I think God is in it. So that's next week. Uh, today is John chapter 5, and we've been making our way through John. Uh, as you can tell by my shirt, I've been on vacation the last week. I got this tropical... Uh, shirt in honor of Missouri where we went on vacation. <laughs> I actually bought it. This was my Easter shirt and I bought it because I had a lot of flowers on it. And then once I got to church on Easter Sunday, I found out it had surfers on it as well. So not super relevant uh, to me. Uh, but uh, we were on vacation. And when we go home to Missouri, uh, I, I don't want to do anything new. I'm a very sentimental person and I just want to just sort of relive what I have already lived. And so I want to eat at the same restaurants. I want to drive the same roads. And one of my favorite things to do is to get out photo albums. And my mom was a big picture taker and she preserved those in photo albums. And now all these years later, I can relive my life through these photos. I don't know what our kids are going to be able to do when they're adults. They're going to drag out our iPhone 10s and be like, dad, this is dead. There's no charger for it. They don't even make it anymore. How am I going to know what my life was like growing up? You know, uh, but, uh, but Thank God my mom preserved all that. And so I'll get the photo books out and I'll flip through them. And I'll start from when I was a baby. I'm very self-centered is the message that I'm getting as I'm 
telling you about this. But as I was looking for photo albums I hadn't seen in a while, I, I found my senior book. If you're a child of the 90s, you may remember at the beginning of your senior year, they gave you this black little kind of book that you put pictures in and you wrote about your, what your life was like. And so it asked you your favorite hobbies, it asked you who your friends were, all that kind of stuff. And you were documenting your senior year. Well, I found it and started thumbing through it and it was the worst. Somehow I managed to be both incredibly insecure and incredibly prideful at the same time. I don't know how I threaded that sweet needle, but I did. And so with every page, I'm just cringing. Like, I just want to go back in time and just slap myself real hard, like open-handed. So it's like dis dishonor to it, you know? I was... <laughs> I was just so embarrassed. And so I've been thinking about John. You know, when John became a follower of Jesus, he, he, he was a teenager. Uh, in fact, he may have been uh, the youngest of all the disciples. The reason we think that is because at the Passover, the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples, John is the one asking all the questions. And if you know anything about the Passover meal and how it was ordered, the head of the family would sit at the, the, the head of the table. So that was Jesus' spot. And then the youngest person in the family would sit at the right hand of the head and would ask questions that would prompt the telling of the Old Testament story of the Exodus. And so in the Gospels, the question that are asked that night are asked by John. And so some Bible scholars think, you can't know for sure, that he may have been the youngest of the disciples. And that's why he was the one asking Jesus all those questions. So he probably was a teenager when he became a disciple. But now he's writing this gospel towards the end of his life. Not, not, he's not just a young person anymore. Now he's got uh, lots of gray hair, maybe even no hair in my imagination. And he is writing his account of Jesus' life. And as I mentioned before, his is a little bit different than the other three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic Gospels. They're giving a synopsis of Jesus' life. John's is a synopsis, but it's combined with a sermon. He has a spiritual goal for you that you would know that God sent Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, so that you could have forgiveness of sin. That's, he puts his cards on the table. That's his goal for us today and every time we read his Gospel. But he's older in his life. And I wondered, as I was flipping through my senior book, if he thinks back about what he was like as a, a new follower of Jesus in his teenage years and all the dumb things that they did and said, all the times that they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about and asked some dumb clarifying question if he kind of cringes sometimes. And that's why this is interesting about John's gospel. He never mentions himself. There's Peter is in there. Philip is in there. Uh, other disciples are in there, but he never mentions himself, which is exactly what I would do if I was retelling my high school years. I would just take myself out because I was the worst, right? Thankfully, the passage we're reading today isn't about John. It's not about any of the disciples. It's actually about Jesus himself. And it's interesting because it's a story about Jesus healing something, which if you were here last week, uh, last week was a story about Jesus healing someone. And so if John's point is that we would understand Jesus is a healer, I think we could say, well, we, we, got, <clears throat> we got that. Why follow it up with another story of Jesus healing. And I think the key to that is in verses 16 through 18. So this is what happens after the story that we're reading today. It says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. 
Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So there are three reasons that these religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. And they are the three things that we need to put in front of our eyes as we read this story so we can understand why John would follow up a healing story with another healing story. Number one, they're trying to kill Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. Number two, they tried to kill Jesus because he had the audacity to call God his father. And number three, because he was making himself equal with God. So take those three things and let's go back to verse one. John chapter five, verse one. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. So you can imagine a very crowded Jerusalem, lots of pilgrims coming to worship in the religious capital of Israel. Verse two, now there was in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now, some of those directional pieces, they don't mean a lot to us. It's like when we like, uh, listen to people who are from LA talk about LA, they're always talking about landmarks. There's some, for some reason, they're always obsessed with this freeway, their Pacific Coast Highway, as if the rest of us common people know what it's like to live there or what they're talking about. It, this kind of feels like this. John's telling us about the sheep gate and we're like, mm-hmm, okay. Uh, and uh, then they're at this pool, which was a reservoir. There were actually a few of these reservoirs around Jerusalem. Uh, they weren't just, uh, you know, holes with water in it. They were decorative. That's why it's called a colonnade. Archaeologists are still finding these places and are excavating these places all around Jerusalem. So we've got the picture in mind, even though we may not know the exact locations of it here. Verse 3, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, uh, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, what's interesting here is in my Bible, which is the NIV, uh, maybe in your Bible as well if you have the ESV and others, uh, verse 4 is missing. Uh, look back at that, you can see that. It just goes from verse 3. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And then it skips to verse 5. One who had been there was an invalid for 38 years. Now, in between verses 3 and 5, your Bible, like mine, may have a little asterisk, which means go down to the bottom of the page, and it tells you what verse 4 is. And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, one of the big accusations uh, out there, if you search the internet, which sometimes I recommend and sometimes I don't, about Christianity is that it's kind of a conspiracy that long ago some people invented these stories about Jesus and now they have been perpetuating this lie for all this time and they use simpletons like us to perpetuate uh, their lie. This little asterisk and the missing of verse 4 is actually proof that that's not happening. Because, you know, we have copies and copies and copies and copies of these, uh, of these scriptures, right? There's, there's not just one copy in Washington, D.C. that we can default in. There are millions of copies uh, in the ground, fragments of copies, whole copies. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those were copies of Old Testament books. And each time they find a copy in the ground somewhere, whether it's a fragment or a full piece, uh, they date it. And our Bibles want to use the oldest of those copies. Well, they're still finding these copies, thank God. So whenever the scholarship decides there's enough of these new copies to inform what is in the Bible and what is accurate, they let us know. So they don't take out pieces. 
But the, the historians, the archaeologists, the Bible scholars, they will tell us that the oldest copies of the Gospel of John don't have verse 4. So a lot of copies do, but the oldest ones don't. And so they want us to know. And so it's easy for us to explain something as simple as that to skeptics who think that we're just all a big, a big part of a conspiracy and we don't know any better to say, hey, actually the people translating the scripture, the thing that is the most precious to us that we're taking our direction from, puts all their cards on the table. And you'll see this happening a lot. Actually, the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark uh, chapter 16 has huge brackets around it for this very same reason because the earliest copies of the Gospel of Mark don't have the last uh, remaining verses of Mark chapter 16 and so they want us to know. Nobody's trying to pull the wool over our eyes but we know even if this verse was in John's original copy or not we know from what this guy says later that they believe that that pool that he was around had a healing ability and it was because an angel was would get in there and stir up the water and the first person in would be healed. Now, lots of people have lots of theories about what caused the stirring of the water. If you've ever been to Yellowstone Park, you know that Old Faithful is literally like a clock. And if you go there, there is a clock there and it will tell you when the next eruption of Old Faithful is going to be and they get it right on the money. There are geological features like that and so some people think maybe underneath Jerusalem there was some gas released in this pool at a certain time in a specific way and people just thought it was an angel. I don't know. I also know that when we read from the first page of the Bible, Bible all the way to the end that God cares about the sick, the hurting, the lame. And why would it be out of God's character to send one of his messengers, the angels, to go and stir up some water and give that grace to people who are suffering? It doesn't matter to us here today. Either way, we know that this man believed that if he could just get in the water, he would be healed. The problem was he was an invalid for 38 years. I'm 38 years old, so imagine my whole life not being able to move and he didn't have anybody to get him in the water fast enough so somebody else would always steal his healing in his mind. Verse six, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now notice that Jesus does two things. It says that Jesus saw him lying there and that he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. Now, if you remember back from John chapter 4, Jesus is going through Samaria. He stops at a well. He meets a woman. They have a religious conversation. In the middle of it, he takes a hard left turn and he says, go and get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, that's right, you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had quite a few husbands and the man that you're with right now is not your husband. And she is totally blown away that he knew this. He shouldn't have known this. They were strangers. Jesus didn't know her friends. There was no social media at the time. He knew this supernaturally. Now, in John chapter 5, it says that Jesus learned about this guy. We don't know exactly how he learned. Could have God given him supernatural knowledge? Yes, that's for sure could have happened. I think that Jesus learned his story just the way the language is used and the story unfolds, the same way you and I would learn a story. He sees this man and he's curious about him. And so maybe he asks around, and somebody says, yeah, actually, this guy, he has been an invalid for 38 years. He comes here all the time, and he, and he just can't get down. Jesus sees him, and then he learns his story. Remember, when Jesus called his disciples, it wasn't too much long after that that he actually sends them out to imitate the ministry that he had been doing. He sends them out to preach about the kingdom of God. 
He's modeled for them what it means to cast out demons and to heal people. And so they go. And, and Jesus is, he's eyes wide open. He says, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. This is going to be really hard. In fact, here's what you should do when people reject you. And yet he sends them out as unqualified as they were. And they come back rejoicing because they were able to do his ministry. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, we call that the Great Commission. You've heard that if you've been a church person for a while. It's Jesus doing the same thing for all of us that he did for those original 12. Hey, I'm sending you out as unqualified as you are. I'm sending you out to do my ministry. Jesus has placed his ministry in our hands. Uh, You've heard people say, we are his hands, we are his feet. That is absolutely true. He is not coming in physical form until he comes in physical form to bring his kingdom fully. Uh, In the meantime, we are his physical form. We we are his ministry. And so if we have the ministry of Jesus in our hands, we should do the ministry the way that Jesus did it, which here we see he sees people and then he learns their story. And once he does that, he's moved with compassion and his compassion takes action. Now, we might say, well, you know, I'm just too busy to see people. I don't even notice people. I mean, think about when the last time you really saw a panhandler. I don't mean you saw them out of the corner of your eye or you were aware that they were there. I mean, you just really saw them. And then have any of us, and I say us, me included, ever stop to learn their story? No, we just assume their story. Drugs, alcohol, they burn their family bridges. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. But it's the two parts. It's seeing people and it's learning their story. And Jesus was busy. In fact, if you read the Gospels, they're always putting locations in there. You know why? Because Jesus was always on the move. He was always going from this place to that place, on his way to this place. And yet he's still able to stop and see people. He learns his story, then he's moved with with compassion. Yesterday, I was at the store buying some birthday cards. And, uh, and, and, you know, when you pick out a birthday card, you got to be totally in it because uh, Hallmark will sneak something inappropriate in on you, you know. And uh, and so I got my head in the sand trying to find the perfect intersection of appropriate and hilarious, you know. And then then I always flip the card over to see how much it's going to be because... You know, a $6 card feels excessive uh, to me. <laughs> and so I'm just in it. I'm just in it. I'm flipping. I'm reading. I'm looking for the perfect one. I'm also picking them out for Amanda. So I know I can't just, you know, mail it in. I'll get in trouble for that. And at the next row over, I hear a massive crash followed by a child, which, you know, I'm, I'm a dad and I have a three-year-old. And so I'm like, I think that is like a three-year-old. And I'm not Sherlock Holmes, but my guess is what's happened is that three-year-old didn't want to be in the cart and leaned out maybe to grab something and tumbled over. The cart fell, and now the child is crying. And, and immediately, my first thought was all the reasons why I just needed to stay with the carts. You know, somebody else is going to come and help. I bet that row is crowded. I mean, that's somebody's job uh, to do that. Uh, I won't know what to say. I'm not a doctor. I don't, you know, I mean, what am I going to do? I hadn't even had the conscious thought that I should go over and see if any help had. My first thought was all the reasons why I didn't need to help. But thank God, I've been thinking about this all week, that Jesus saw people and then he learned their story and he had compassion, which turned to action. 
And so I thought, well, the least I can do is just, just go and see. And so I went around the corner, and sure enough, no one had come to help this mom and her daughter yet. Her cart was still turned over, and, and I wasn't a doctor that she looked like she was going to be fine and just needed to be comforted a little bit by her mom, but I was able to pick her cart up, put the things back in it. But had I not been thinking about John chapter 5 all week long, I would have let somebody else do it. But if Jesus has placed his ministry in our hands, then we need to do ministry the way Jesus did it. We need to see people. We need to learn their story. We make sure that we are compassionate. And when we have compassion, we need it to turn to action. Verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, this is a formula that Jesus is drawn to. I want help. There is no one to help. So if you're in that situation today, I want help, but there is no one who can help me. The Gospels would tell us that Jesus is drawn like a moth to a light to that situation. And again, if we have his ministry, if he's tasked us with that responsibility, we should also be drawn to that formula. Who are the people in our neighborhoods, at work, and among our friends, in the world, who want help and there is no one to help? Verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. So Jesus does what Jesus can do, which is to heal on demand. And then he gives him instructions. Get up and pick up your mat and walk. Now his mat would have been, imagine a sleeping bag, uh, but instead of cotton, it's made of straw. So you, you've got the, the covering and inside was straw. It could be rolled up. This man spent all 38 years of his life on something similar to a mat. Uh, for some reason, his parents are not around anymore. Uh, he is on his own. Uh, he is, and somebody needed to probably get him to that pool. He can't be healed in his mind because nobody can put him actually into the pool from where he's laying. And Jesus says, you're healed. And he was healed, but pick up your mat. He probably hated that mat. That mat was a sign to him of how hard his previous 38 years had been. And why would Jesus ask him to do that? If somebody who's been fighting cancer through chemo and chemo worked and they didn't have cancer anymore, they don't want their port. They don't just say, hey, I'll just keep this as a little souvenir. They'd say, get this out of me. This This pour in me is a sign that I had cancer. I do not have cancer anymore. I do not need chemo anymore. The old is gone. The new has come. Get this out. And what Jesus is saying is, new has come. You can walk, but I want you to carry your port with you. I want you to carry your mat with you. Why would Jesus do that? Because that mat was the proof that God had worked in his life. But the mat takes on a different purpose. It's not the same. It is the same, but it's different. Those of us in here who have struggled with addiction, and God has overcome that, but you still feel that urge, you still feel that drawing to that addiction. Uh, We pray, God, take that away from me. I don't want that. That's a destructive feeling. That's That's a destructive temptation. I know that there is no good for me in that thing that I've been addicted to. God, just take that feeling, take that desire away from me. And yet, what do we find from people who are in recovery? That most of the time, God leaves that. Why would God do that? Many people have uh, trauma. I mean, most of us have experienced trauma. 
And, and still when we think about it all these years later, there's, there's pain. We say, God, take that pain away. Take that sting away. I don't want to carry this thing around anymore. And yet for some reason, God lets it stay. Because that mat is proof that God has worked in your life. And that mat becomes an object lesson for the people Jesus is getting ready to talk to. I think some of you know that for a, a two or three year window, uh, Amanda and I uh, really tried hard to pursue adoption. We had many friends who had adopted before, even many friends here at Bayou City. Adoption is a beautiful picture of the gospel, how God brings us into a family. And, and we wanted another child in our family. And so we pursued this. We had a great agency, uh, but actually uh, four times we were paired with a birth mom and all four times it, it didn't work out. Uh, one of the most painful of those was we were actually went to the hospital and were there when the baby was born. Amanda was in the labor and delivery room. I was the first person non-mom to hold uh, that little guy. We gave it a name, a name he still has somewhere uh, around Houston. Uh, day two or three of being in the hospital, the, the uh, social worker that worked at the hospital came to us. They actually pulled us out of the room and said, the mom is having second thoughts, and so you need to leave the hospital. We left. We've never seen her again, and of course, we've never seen that baby again. Uh, uh, the last time that we uh, tried and were paired with a birth mom, we had told our adoption agency, like, hey, we're out. Like, you know, this, we're not out, like, quitting yet, but uh, we want to be at the bottom of your list. Like, just, we just can't endure another one of these, so call everybody else before you call us. We were on vacation in Florida about this time, five years ago. And uh, in the middle of our vacation, that's when always a phone call like that happens in the middle, never at the end when it's super convenient, always in the middle. And it was our agency saying, we've called everybody on the list. There's actually a baby. The mom's already left the hospital uh, without the baby. And so it needs a home. Are you willing to, to step in? And we were like, yeah, I mean, who's going to say no to that? And so we leave our vacation earlier and somewhere around Shreveport, we get a phone call and said, hey, it's uh, never mind. And, and still, when I drive in that area, I-10, right, right before, not Shreveport, what's the, uh, where the LSU is, Baton Rouge. Uh, oh, this, man, this sucks. And God has blessed us. We have a little baby, Willa, who is the world's most awesome three-year-old, no offense to you. Uh, right. But still you get there and you're like, oh, I, I, I hate this little stretch. And I drive by that hospital in Willowbrook, which for some reason I have to drive by all the time. So I hate this hospital. And, and you want it to be, does God take that away? Like, look how you've blessed us and look how it all worked out according to your plan. Would you just take that sting away? But that, that sting is proof that God has worked in my life. And he uses that sting as an object lesson so somebody else will understand Jesus a little more clearly. I think that's why he has this man take his mat. I don't think it was because Jerusalem didn't need more litter around it. Because God used it so that people could know Jesus more. Verse 12, or excuse me, verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. 
Now notice these religious leaders do not even acknowledge the transformation that's happened in his life. Right? They're just like, hey, you're not following the rules. But Sabbath was very important to them. Because Sabbath distinguished them, uh, the Israelites, among lots of other people in the world at the time. Now, when we think of Sabbath, we think of it as just like, oh, God wants us to rest. God rested on the seventh day, and he did. So he wants us to be refreshed. And, and, but when you read the Old Testament, the Sabbath is way bigger than just you having energy. Um, it, it was a sign to the Israelites and to the rest of the world, God is our provider. They live in a culture of daily bread. And, and so if you didn't work... That day, you didn't eat that day. Now, they didn't have big bank account systems where you could store up a, a lot of things, right? They didn't have debit cards. I could just make cash. I can pay for things later. They were a daily substance kind of culture. So when they took a day off to honor God, it was a sign, God is my provider. No matter how hard I work, and I do work hard, God is my provider. Everything that we have comes from God. And Sabbath was a way of acknowledging that. And so it made them distinct among the people of the earth. So that's why Sabbath was so important to them, not just so that, you know, we could have rest. Because none of us think that we're tired uh, until somebody else is asking us to, something to, do, uh, to do something, then we're always tired, right? But when we want to do things, we always have enough energy. But Sabbath is more than that. You know, there, there should be a day in the week that you do not work at all as an act of faith. Uh, God, you provide for me. I, I, I work hard all week, but I know that you are my provider. Right? And so they're bothered that he's breaking the Sabbath. They, they had a commentary that went around, along with the law, something that they had written. It was called the Tradition of the Elders. And in that little handbook were 39 types of work that you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. Uh, number 39 was to carry a load from one place to another. And so that's what they catch him doing. He's carrying a load. He's carrying his mat uh, from the pool where he was healed to wherever it was he was going. And they're like, hey, you can't do that. Verse 11, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So the man essentially says, hey, it's great that that's what the handbook says. But the man who made me well, uh, he said to pick it up. So I picked it up. <laughs> verse 14 later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him see you are well again stop sinning or something worse may happen to you now if you not just read ahead if you just got there with me that was not what you were expecting Jesus to say right? Jesus found him so Jesus went and looked for him so we're thinking hey Jesus is going to keep this celebration train going hey I healed you back here let me help you find a place to live uh, help, let me help you find a job or why don't you come along with us these other disciples but that's not what Jesus says he says stop sinning which is already sort of confrontational or something worse will happen to you I mean the celebration train comes to a grinding halt right there Jesus ties his sickness to his sin. Now, we're not going to make a rule of that. We're not going to make an always of that because in John chapter 9, there was a man who had been born blind and his disciples thought that that was the rule. If you are sick like that, uh, it is because you sin. So they asked Jesus, who sinned? I mean, this guy was born blind. Was it like his sin? Because like, God knew he was going to sin in the future, so he made him blind. Or was it his parents' sin that caused him to be blind? And Jesus said, no, it's not that at all. This is for the glory of God right, that this happened. So it's not an always sin and sickness go together. 
Sometimes we just get sick. We live in a fallen world. There's disease. There's brokenness. There's pain. All of us are going to die. And, and most of us are going to get sick and die. It's just, just a part of living on this cursed planet. Thank God that Jesus has unrolled the curse. He's returning. He's taking us somewhere better than that. Right? So it's not a always sickness and sin. But here it, it was. And what Jesus is saying is God has done a great work in your life. So change. Lest we think that this just happened here in Acts chapter 12, this little story tucked in the middle of this sweeping narrative of the very first Christians. Herod Agrippa, who was a regional king, was given a great speech and the crowd started to shout, he speaks like a god. And the scripture says that Herod didn't give glory to the one true God, so the angel of the Lord struck him and he was eaten alive by worms. That's in your Bible with no asterisk. I mean, that's, that's there. Earlier in Acts, there was a couple who I, I promise you here would be leaders at Bayou City. Um, in fact, they were such committed Jesus followers that they sold a piece of their property and they gave like 90% of it to the church. That's how we give here, by the way, 90%. No, I'm, just I'm just joking, jokes. Because that would be hilarious here. But they did it. Um, but they... They let people think they gave 100% of it. It's like a 10% lie. They did that because somebody else in their church had done that, sold a piece of land, gave all of the proceeds to the church. They wanted people to think that. If you're a competitive person, you get that. And the scripture says that they died right there where they stood, where they stood at the apostles' feet. Uh, To bring it um, a little bit more scary, in 1 Corinthians The Apostle Paul is giving instructions about the Lord's Supper, which we take about every other week or every third week here, the bread and the cup. And Paul writes to them, you know, some people in your church in Corinth are sick and even some have fallen asleep. Some have died because they took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's why a lot of times we'll pause before we come. But I doubt any of us, the last time we took communion thought to ourselves I'm taking my life into my hands when I rip off this bread in the name of Jesus and I dip it into the cup I am approaching the burning bush Hebrew says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God and I think Jesus would say the same thing to us Today that he said to this man in the temple, God has done a great work in your life. He sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. The sinless son of God was crucified willingly so that you and I could know God so that we could have eternal life. So we could have the curse of this earth rolled back. God has done a great work in our lives So be different. Stop sinning. At least that's what he's saying to me today. Verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
Jesus said, I have the authority to decide what happens on the Sabbath and what doesn't. And I wonder if you and I have given Jesus that kind of authority. Jesus, you have authority to decide what happens in my life and what doesn't. They tried to kill him because he was calling God his own father. And the great news is, is Jesus has shared that with us. Later on in John, Jesus is going to say that the love that the father and son have for one another, father, God, Jesus, the son, the love that they shared lives in us. God loves you with the same love that he loved Jesus. You have the capacity to love God in the same way that Jesus loved God. So we can call God our Father. Galatians chapter 4 says that when we confessed Christ and believed in Him, Christ sent the Spirit of God to come and live in us. And when the Spirit comes into our life, you know what He says? Abba, Father. So even though God is holy and pure and righteous, and we approach Him with holiness and faith, He is our Father and we can come to Him as sons and daughters. Both are true at the same time. And it says that he was making himself equal with God, which is one of the themes of the Gospel of John. In fact, that's what he's going to talk about in the next passage. So we'll save it for them. But the question I've been asking myself all week, I, I, I want to share it with you, is reading this story. We know Jesus is a healer. That's what we read last week. But am I seeing and understanding and honoring Jesus the way that he deserves to be seen, understood, and honored? Am I seeing, understanding, in honoring Jesus the way that this passage would encourage me to see, understand, and honor Jesus. Let's pray.